This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. But you remain standing for a moment. Uh, a few of us from here at Holland UCC went down to North Carolina last week and had a chance to participate in the Wild Goose Festival, which was an outdoor three, four-day camping festival focused on spirituality, justice, music, and art. So we really got to hear some great speakers. Andrew played music uh, and heard some other great musicians as well. And it was just a delightful time. And one of the things that opened our time was a body prayer entitled These Hands. So I'm going to invite us into this body prayer to participate together. There's going to be a few motions, so if you need to spread out a little bit or find a comfortable stance, please do. And it's going to be a repeat after me. So I will speak a line, and then I would like you to say that back and then follow with the hand motions. We take a few deep breaths. We take a few deep breaths. We live in a time of clenching fists. We live in a time of clenching fists. In anger that threatens. In greed that clutches. In greed that clutches. In worry and fear that tense and tighten. In worry and fear that tense and tighten. This is no way to live. This is no way to live. Our hands are empty. Our hands are empty. We acknowledge our powerlessness. We are not in control. We are but humble protagonists in your great story of love. We receive your grace that heals, forgives, and liberates. Is the way to live. This is the way to live. And so we open our hands. And so we open our hands. Our hearts. Our hearts. Our minds. Our minds. Our doors. Our doors. We take a few deep breaths. We take a few deep breaths. We extend our hands in blessing. We extend our hands in blessing. As we have been blessed, so we bless. As we have been blessed, so we bless. We hold no weapons and make no threats. We hold no weapons and make no threats. We seek peace with all and we make peace for all. We seek peace with all and we make peace for all. It is better for us to give than to receive. It is better for us to give than to receive. 
Make us instruments of your peace, living God. Make us instruments of your peace, living God. We surrender our lives to your purposes. May your spirit fill our lives. May your spirit fill our lives. And work through these hands. We take a few deep breaths. We open our eyes. We open our eyes. We see your light in one another. We see your light in one another. A flickering candle in the dark. A flickering candle in the dark. A quiet glow at dawn. A quiet glow at dawn. A rising sun for this new day. A rising sun for this new day. We call forth that light in one another. We call forth that light in one another. And we honor one another with these hands. And we honor one another with these hands. May the peace of Christ rise in you. May the peace of Christ rise in you. I invite you now to turn toward a neighbor and just acknowledge the light in them just with a silent bow. Maybe seated. And at this time, we're going to invite Kelsey forward. And here we go. Okay. Um, thank you, Brian, for that. That was beautiful. I feel really honored to be here because um, I love this community from afar. I live in Grand Rapids, but I received the newsletter two days ago, and I was just really touched by it, and I just love to see all the work that's doing here, and this certainly isn't just another faith community in Holland. This is something special, so um, thanks to all of you for being a part of it. It's very hopeful to me. Um, so my name is Kelsey Herbert. I work at the Christian Reformed Church, Office of Social Justice. I come here from that place, but I also come as myself, just a person who deeply longs for immigrant justice in our communities and country. So today we're going to talk about um, why don't immigrants just get in line. This is a common phrase maybe some of you have heard before. Um, and we're going to learn about how the system actually works. What does it look like to actually get in line? And I am truly convinced that this conversation doesn't come at a more pertinent time. Um, the, we'll talk a little bit later about what um, policies are actually being proposed in this moment so you can learn how to advocate, but there truly is a lot happening right now, and so this is such a moment to have these important conversations and learn the true facts about what it actually looks like to come to this country, what is that process like, so we can have those conversations with folks who might not know. So um, this is a conversation about access. Um, the church can all day long come aside, alongside immigrants, provide charity, provide rides, provide health care um, in times of need. Um, but we're going to talk about access to the pond, not just how to fish or tools for fishing, but who can get into the pond. Um, that's the question today. So we don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to... Um, hop right in. But I really hope that, and I truly believe that this will be a start of a conversation or a part of an ongoing conversation already here at Holland UCC in Holland, that um, this is not the end but the beginning to something bigger. So 
Um, everybody has received a card here. This is um, going to be your identity for the next um, few minutes. So try to put yourself into this um, person's story. So everyone has a unique card of someone who um, would like to immigrate to the United States to live permanently. So when we say that, we're not talking about a temporary visa like a student visa or a part-time or a temporary agricultural visa. Um, immigrating means that you are moving permanently to um, live and work. So you're going to read your card, try to put yourself in this person's shoes, and then you're going to try to pick which visa do you think would work for you. So there are four ways. There are only four visas that are available to people who want to immigrate to the U.S. There is refugee and asylum, there's employment, there is family, and there is diversity. So read your card and try to think which one might be best for me. And they're all over there. And the, the explanations um, are clear when you read it. So when you read your card and you're thinking that you are a person who is fearful for their life, that they're in danger, the refugee and asylum visa might be the best option for you. If you want to unite with family in the US, you can try the family preference visa here. The diversity visa is if you come from a country where there's not already a lot of people in the U.S. from that country, you can try the diversity one. And if you're looking to move to the U.S. for work, the employment one might work best for you. So you're going to read your card and then get up, choose a visa, there's uh, pencils here, and bring it back to your, um, your uh, chair, and then we'll discuss. So if you have any questions, you can ask me. But um, And then from here on out, there's a bunch of opportunity for you all to talk. So. Um, Participation is welcomed. So, um, yeah, read your card and then get up and see if you're able to enter. You can all just also discuss with your neighbor if you'd like. Can I change my mind? No, I'm not going to. I can see what you can do. These are kind of like Monopoly money. Um, so this is not a true form that someone fills out. It would be more like a stack like this and a lot of money. So um, they answer, ask the question, can I try another one? Is it also quite so simple? So take over the grants, all these other true qualifications. Um, um, many lawyers have been through this um, training with us and have affirmed that, but monopoly wouldn't kind of think about it like that. All right, is everyone all set? Read your card? Raise your hand if you feel like I'm in. This is awesome. I'm coming to the U.S. Okay, so a few people are pretty confident. What about there's no way? It's not happening. Okay, and I'm sure the rest are kind of like maybe it's possible. Unclear. There's a lot of um, unclarity, a lot of questions. Okay, um, just to begin, try to think of one word that describes what this experience was like for you. Um, how did you feel going through this process? And then I can just maybe go around the room, so speak loudly, so folks online can hear us. Um, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. So, um, who would like to begin with their word, and then we'll just go around. Yeah. I would feel hopeless. Hopeless. Just, I'm not going to reunite with my family. It's hopeless. Hopeless. Yeah. Let's go with Difficult. Okay. Frustrating. Frustrated. Confused. Okay. 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 Confused.
it's the first question for a legal permanent resident. Are you the spouse or child of a legal permanent resident? So it doesn't make concessions for parents of legal Right, so your immigration status in the U.S. depends on whether you can bring a certain family member or not. So a citizen could bring a parent, but a legal permanent resident cannot. So that's that's the difference. And so you have to wait a certain amount of time um, after being in the U.S. to become a citizenship citizen. So if you are just a legal permanent resident, your relationships are very limited on who you can bring. But did you find that you're able to bring um, nieces or cousins? Um, what kind of relationship do you have to have for, to bring to petition for somebody? What do we see in here? I think it's just parents or children. Immediate family only. Yeah. Right, so there's no uncles bringing you know, nieces and nephews. Cousins are not able to petition for cousins. It's immediate family only. So many, most people do come through the family system, but we can see that it's still quite limited. And you mentioned wait times. Does anyone see any wait times that stuck out to them? 11 to 22 years. Yep, so if you are a sibling of a U.S. citizen, you could wait 11 to 22 years to get a visa to come to the U.S. So family wait, families wait a long time. Although spouses, um, parents, and minor children, that is a, a quick wait. That's the fastest way, actually. So they do try to keep those very tight relationships, but not siblings. So the wait times can be really long, and it can be even longer depending on where you're from. Any questions about the family visa? This is one way of immigrating to the U.S. through family. Just to comment that this is very opposite to the old immigration patterns we had when we had more open immigration, that a family member would come and then pretty soon the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and everybody would come and that family member would have established an outpost, if you will, for the rest of the family coming full less a great point. So the system that we're dealing with here in, was put into law in 1965. So a lot of people say, well, my grandparents did it the legal way, um, or great-grandparents, why, why can't people today? It's because it's fundamentally a different system it, um, that favored Western European um, immigrants. So the system is completely different today, um, and it's centered on actually family and assets. So let's move to the assets section, which is employment. Okay. Would anyone like to share the story of the person who tried to come under here? Yes. Um, so I'm a 26-year-old woman from Saudi Arabia, and my husband and I have college educations. So we're moderate Muslims. Um, I'm frustrated by extremist Islamist um, views in Saudi Arabia, which keep me from being able to freely pursue a career in law. So we're we're thinking about moving to um, the United States so that I can pursue a career. Um, and as I went through my petition, um, I guess I can say I'm a skilled worker, but being able to prove that I am an alien of exceptional ability, or um, and then as you progress down, you have to kind of already have like an employer lined up in the United States, and um, they have to be willing to pay all these legal fees for you and do different applications for you. And if I'm a woman in Saudi Arabia, even if I have a college education, I probably haven't. I'm probably not accomplished in my career to that extent. That's kind of why I want to move. So um, I was kind of thinking I might not make it. 
Yes, that was a good analysis. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> you did it. Um, yeah, so a person, this person would not be able to come through. She mentioned a bunch of things here. So are you a skilled worker? So there are only um, 5,000 immigrant visas allotted each year through this, um, through employment for non-skilled worker, but none of those can go to agriculture. But we also, with that in mind, 60 to 70% of all agricultural workers are undocumented. And not 60 to 70% of immigrant workers, it's of all agricultural workers in the US, in the US. many who are in our communities actually in West Michigan. So um, that is a precarious situation for employers and for um, us as consumers to know that 60 to 70% of the food that we eat is coming from hands of people who have no opportunity to gain legal status in this country. Okay, so you are a skilled worker, yes, but you mentioned that you didn't have a job offer. So under this visa, it's not like you can just show up at the airport and walk through um, security and then uh, pursue a job opportunity. You have to have that offer ahead of time. So that's pretty high skilled. You have to be pretty um, well known for that. And also when we say if you are skilled and you do have a job offer, it has to be in an industry that is, has a shortage of labor. Because your employer has to reconduct a job search if they do offer it to you, before they offer it to you. They need to ensure that there is no other American who can do the job as well as you who wants to do it. So this is a huge, huge issue, employment. There's a lot of myths around employment and people coming to the US for work. So this is a really, really important one. And so I hope that this session equips you to have these conversations, particularly about employment. Yes. How does this work for folks that come um, for education purposes, like, you know, for college? Yeah, so they, they would come under, under a student visa. And this is important because it's not like you have a temporary visa, then you have a next step to a different visa, then a next step to finally you can stay and you have citizenship. So students who come under student visas, first of all, they have to prove, prove that they are financially stable. They can't get loans, so they have to be able to financially fully pay their way through. Um, and then, when you graduate, if you get a job in your field, you can do a one-year job to use your degree. It has to be in the field that you study. And then after that, um, some people decide to go to grad school because they're like, well, I want to stay. What else can I do? And then after grad school, we could do another one-year job thing. But if you want to stay after a student visa, after your one-year working in your field, also it's probably not many companies want to hire someone just for one year. You have to go through these forms. You have to get in line just like everyone else. So you have to go through this form. So think about a lot of college graduates. Are they skilled? Maybe. Can they prove that they're a person of exceptional ability or able to invest $500,000 or more in the US? Um, do you have a college degree in a specialty field? So where there's a demand for labor in the US? Um, is your employer willing to file that paperwork for you up to $10,000? So it's really difficult to stay here um, through a student visa, and a lot of people do. And if you want to stay also, if you get married, if you find someone you want to marry, you have to go through the family visa. You have to go through one of these four. There's no like next step after a temporary visa. So even if you've been on an agricultural visa for 10 years, you've been working here, um, you still would have to go through one of these lines. And looking at employment, I'm not sure how a, a farm worker could ever get um, legal status in the U.S. through this. And this is the only system we have. Yeah, I, 
mine was, I grabbed that form and mine was a, and a 44 year old man from Mexico who has three small kids and is a subsistence farmer. Couldn't get by question one. Mm -hmm. And on either form, I tried two forms. And right, and it's interesting how we define the word skilled, and it's not even a dignified way of talking about it, because a lot of US workers don't want to do that work, and it does take skill, it takes great skill. So even the way we talk about this system, the way we talk about immigrants does not always talk about in a dignified way that we're called to see people. Um, so yes, if you are a skilled worker, you have a degree in a specialty field, and you have a job offer, you're likely to come to the US. But if you are a person of exceptional ability or able to prove that you have $500,000 or more, you don't need a job offer, you can just come. And that's one of the, actually the fastest ways to come. So having an immediate family, like a spouse or minor children, and being able to invest $500,000 or more. So that's kind of how this, the system is based around um, these things. So you'll wait 12 to 18 months if you have $500,000 or more or a person of exceptional ability. And a person of exceptional ability, um, at least in these cards, the name, was anybody one of those people? Do we have any nuclear physicists from yeah. South Korea? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, do you want to share your story? Yeah, a 36-year-old woman from South Korea, you're a prominent nuclear physicist known internationally as a candidate for the Nobel Prize. I'm definitely getting in. Though you love your work in Korea and have a comfortable life there, you've been granted a special research position at MIT and are eager to begin work in the United States. So I thought, yeah, this is the kind of person that yeah. our country loves him. Yeah, so you're um, internationally renowned, well-known. Um, yes, on basketball, you know, athletes come in under this type of visa or um, really famous scientists as well and have extensive documented achievements. Um, so we'll compare that 12 to 18 months with the Times refugees wait in just a minute. And we can talk about the justice in that. Um, any questions or more thoughts on employment? Or one thoughts on how this is different than you might have initially thought it was? I want to go back to the history. You said 1965 it fundamentally changed. Yeah. Why? It was a, why did it change or what was it like before? Yeah, what, I'm, I'm thinking Cold War, Russia, blah, blah. You know, was that all born out of that, or what? What prompted the fundamental change from what you mentioned yeah. to today? Do you know? I don't know, and yeah. I've asked this question many times because we before we had a quota-based system, so it was something about only. You know, it changed throughout. There was an act in 1917 and an act in 1921 that said what a certain percentage of people that were in the U.S. already could come from your country. There was a lot of people already from Eastern Europe, so that allowed a lot more people from those um, Western European countries to come. And that was actually, a lot of those were put in place to prevent people from Eastern Europe coming. So when I learned about that, I was like, oh, it probably was, you know, to stop migration from Central America or South America, but it was really for Eastern Europe. And so it's just so interesting how today we look, maybe look at Eastern Europeans like, oh, they're the same as us. You know, what does that even mean? But now like, Central Americans are different than us. And so throughout history, how, um, who is, who is welcome and who is not. Um, and so the little differences that we we find among ourselves is very interesting. So 
it basically eliminated race and religion and nationality um, from being considerations for immigration. It turned into a, a system that we have now. So before it was based on nationality and you could be discriminated against because of race or religion. And so this also brings to question um, these executive orders that we're seeing based on our religion. Um, yes. So my understanding um, as well historically was that in like the 80s that there was also like kind of a sweeping gesture, or I don't know if that's the right term, but that allowed people that were here illegally, undocumented, to to easily obtain um, legal status. Is that correct? Yeah, so in 1986 under Reagan, there was an amnesty where almost three million people gained legal status. Um, and at the same time, it came alongside more border enforcement. So it was kind of like a two-pronged approach, but did not reform the system um, in general. It was more kind of Band-Aid approaches. So legalized people, um, border security, but didn't fundamentally change um, the system. And, and, yeah. and one thing that's, we had the legislation called the McCarran Act, which was sort of codifying um, discrimination against Asians and people who were not white. I mean, it was a very racist situation. So that when that went down and they made everything neutral, it was perceived as a real step forward. Thank you. Um, yes. We have an immigration timeline that we also do with this workshop where it goes through um, from colonization until today, the, the policies that were put in place um, regarding immigration. You can see early on how you know, different groups have been discriminated. Really, Asian Americans and Asians in this country really have, I think it's something that we've forgotten um, as a country, but just throughout time, we've really chosen different groups to uh, villainize, and the propaganda that surrounds all of that is really horrifying. What is, what is it today? So it's important to reflect on that. Um, yes? One of the things, and for me personally, as I stand today, I'm going through this employment immigration, and I do not immigrate right. to this country. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. Right, that's an important insight. Right. Something to share with others about what you learned today. Okay, there's a lot in employment, but let's move on for time's sake to refugee and asylum, a very um, critical conversation that began. Um, can someone read their, their story of someone that they thought was possibly able to come with so, refugees? So I am also a 68 year old grandmother from the Congo. Okay. So I, I uh, was in the same boat as uh, Jean up here, but because of the issues with the family visa, I tried to go the other route, the refugee asylum visa. And I was just, I was kind of basically just uncertain about whether these were yes or no answers to the questions, because the first one is, are you fleeing persecution due to race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or political affiliation? And um, basically I was, it sounds like I'm more just concerned about the overall level of violence in my country rather than being personally persecuted as a, as a member of a group or something like that. So I'm not even sure that I can file for refugee or asylum uh, just due to living in a dangerous country. It sounds like the threat against me needs to be more specific. Thank you. 
Yes. So that is the definition of a refugee. A person fleeing persecution, a person whose life is an eminent risk because of race, religion, nationality, political affiliation, political opinion, also membership in a particular social group. We need to add that. Um, so natural disaster is not on there. Being a, just afraid in general, just general violence is not on there. This is also why um, it's very difficult for people in Central America, even children, to claim asylum or refugee status because it's not about, you know, gang violence in uh, Guatemala isn't, you know, it's definitely political because everything is political, but it's not necessarily a government-run program or something uh, systematically killing people. So um, that is the challenge that you know, many people around the world face violence and lives are being threatened. But is it because of your religion or is it because of your race or your nationality? Um, and the answer for many people in Central America is no. So that's the definition of a refugee. It's more than fear, fear for your life. Um, and then the next question is, can you prove the severity of your plight? So that um, is a huge question. But let's talk a little bit about just quick the process for refugees. So um, refugees are in their um, homes and they flee, typically to a different country. So we can use the example of Syria, people leaving Syria going to either Jordan or Turkey. And there they, um, the UN, they'll, re they'll register as a refugee with the UN. And that's the first round of security screenings. So um, the, the UN will refer them to one of the 31 countries in the world that participates in refugee resettlement. The US has the strongest program historically. We welcome the most refugees out of any country, and we have the strongest program right now. It is under threat and is being weakened, um, so we must advocate to keep a really strong, robust program. Um, so the UN will um, then so recommend people to countries. And so um, it says here, and Bethany Christian Services has this as well, that the average wait time is five to 15 years for a refugee to um, be resettled. But less than 1% of refugees, of the 21 million refugees around the world, will ever be resettled. So less than 1% of all refugees will ever be resettled. And the ones that are will wait five to 15 years to, gain, to be resettled in a new country. And resettlement is a permanent option. And it's a life-saving option that's really only available for such a small, small group of people. Um, so, yeah, refugees entering the U.S. are the most screened individuals to enter the country. So no one that comes under diversity or family or employment is screened or vetted more than refugees. But we see that they are truly under attack in this moment. Um, so there's a lot of myths and misunderstanding around, or lack of willingness to understand. Um, but truly they are, the, by definition, the most vulnerable people in the world um, and really are needing to leave because their life is at um, risk. So many people who get resettled, they are victims of torture, they are extremely sick, they um, are, let's see what else, um, women and children, or um, they have family in another country that they can be um, united with. So it's really very selective who is chosen, and the screening process alone for the U.S. is up to two years and involves many uh, U.S. government agencies on the ground in those countries. Um, so that's a little bit about refugee and asylum. Does anybody have any questions on that? Yes. So there, have, there has been a lot of talk specifically about Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. um, does that 
do many of them qualify as particular victims of political opinion because they're, they can, they, they are specifically being persecuted by the Syrian government? Because, I mean, a lot of people see Syrian refugees merely as fleeing a war country in, in the middle of a war, which technically doesn't qualify you for refugees, yeah. right? But it's the political situation that they are being
because you have to pay, fill out the paperwork, and then you can uh, see later if you, you get in that chance. Okay, it's kind of a weird one. Any questions on those four? Scott, I feel like something's brewing. Well, no, I just, you know, it's a warning. Great. So I just wanted to, in the last few minutes, last two minutes, talk about a situation right now that's happening. So there's the program that's called, the program initiated by President Obama in 2012 called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. It's known as DACA. And it was a program that was put in place um, when there was no action in Congress. Congress was not um, making meaningful action on immigration, and still a lot of people were suffering. So um, President Obama um, made an executive order in 2012 called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, which basically says if you are under the age of 16 and you, um, no, sorry, if you came to the US under the age of 16, you're currently under 31, and you blah, 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 you can gain a temporary status. So you can um, work, you can be deferred from deportation. Another word of that is you have protection from deportation, and you can drive. So um, that program, there's about 80, 800,000 people, young people, who um, have this status, and they're at great risk of losing it because there are 10 state attorney generals who have filed or have claimed that they will sue the Trump administration. Um, if he does not rescind the program by um, September 5th. And so we know that our Attorney General is Jeff Sessions, and will this person defend the DACA program if it goes to the Supreme Court? Um, or will he um, take that to the Supreme Court? And based on um, what we know, um, it's unlikely. So there's a great need for advocacy around the DACA program. And then um, last Thursday, a DREAM Act was introduced. The DREAM Act was first introduced 16 years ago in 2001 and has failed through Congress multiple times since then introduced. So it was introduced by Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, and Senator Durbin, who is a Democrat, so it's a bipartisan piece of legislation. And this would give legalization and set a path to citizenship for those DREAMers, those DACA recipients, young people who came to this country um, as children and know no other home besides this place. So um, this is really important right now because it's kind of like, there's a timeline here. So there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of nervousness, I'm sure a lot in Holland as well because there are a lot of DACA recipients in this community. Um, so in the bulletin, um, there's a little blurb, and so it explains a little bit what's happening. And so we have an opportunity to stand in solidarity with these people and raise our voices. And this is really um, also just the beginning of this process because it will be a, I don't actually know if it'll be a long road. It might be a short road because it's very time sensitive, but it, um, a lot of work needs to be put into this. So it says, um, text immigrant dreamers to 52886. And when you do that, you'll get a text message back and you'll have an opportunity to send a message to your members of Congress um, asking them to support legislation that protects DACA recipients and provides long-term solutions, which is the DREAM Act. So there's a, um, a pre-made um, text already for um, Bill Heisinga for you to send a message to him, and also for Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters. It's really important to get Republicans on board with this bill, so it's not seen as a liberal piece of legislation, but really this is just long overdue um, for people, and there is broad support among 
both Republicans and Democrats, to pass a DREAM Act. So Congress um, needs to do their job and make people not wait any longer. So this is an opportunity to um, speak out again, speak up for this. Um, I'm also looking for people to do um, legislative meetings with Bill Heisinger um, in the August recess, talking about immigration. Um, particularly the budget, it's something that we didn't touch on, but um, the budget wants to slash refugee resettlement initiatives by 39%, um, stop overseas programs that mitigate uh, refugees even becoming refugees, and then also um, doing that to fund a border wall to increase immigrant detention and to hire more border officers and ICE agents. So we're really taking funding away from the most vulnerable people in the world to um, uh, increase immigration enforcement, and like we like to say at the Office of Social Justice, we can't enforce our way out of a broken immigration system. And that's what we have, a broken system. And right now we want, are looking to pour a ton of money to enforcing a system instead of um, Congress fixing it. So that's really the ask, that Congress fix our broken immigration system, don't, um, don't um, enforce a broken one. So um, if anybody is interested in having those meetings, you wouldn't be going alone. I'd love to walk with you every step of the way through this, but it's really important that this August that people are meeting with um, him and also our senators as well to um, speak up for important issues now that we know what the system is and the struggles that people face. Um, so there's a bunch of more things I want to say, but um, I will leave it there and let all this marinate inside of you. And I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to um, be with you all and share this information. I hope that we can continue this conversation together. So thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. I know we gave you a limited window, but this was excellent. And I think eye-opening for a lot of us really helps engage our minds and our hearts on this issue. So thank you so much for that. And as we prepare to leave, we take a few deep breaths. We see God's light in one another, a quiet glow at dawn, a flickering candle in the dark. We call forth that light in one another, a rising sun for a new day, and we seek to honor one another and all of creation with these hands. And as you go, may the peace of Christ rise in you today and always. Amen. And go in peace. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.